You can turn with me to the book of James. We are turning the corner into the final chapter. So James chapter 5. Before we do that, let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Oh God, your gospel is amazing. And your compassion and your desire and your power to save is a story we should never tire of recounting. We thank you for the evidence of your Spirit at work in our midst. We ask you for more evidence. We ask you for more power. And now we come to your Word and we want to be shaped by it. We want what you say, what you have inspired what is true in these pages to transform us. We want to look differently. We want to reflect Your Word. We want to hold it up like a mirror to our hearts as James commands us. And we want to be changed by it. We want to go out from here and be different so that people who don't know You would see and long for what we have. And we want to possess deeper affections, deeper satisfaction, a deeper treasuring of Christ as all-sufficient. So do this now for the glory of Jesus. In His name, Amen. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the shows. I've seen a few of them, but it seems recently it's become sort of in vogue and sort of a popular thing to have all sorts of shows on TV that are related to real estate, right? Have you seen that? So there's a whole channel called HGTV, Home and Garden Television, that's dedicated to people's houses. And so sometimes it's remodeling projects, and other times it's people buying homes. And that's just sort of spread and proliferated. So now there's, there's television shows that are all about real estate in New York City and the glitz and the glamour. And there's a whole show that's called Million Dollar Listing, so it's all about million-dollar homes that, that people are, are selling and are buying. And so it's really this opportunity to come and, and, and glimpse into the world of the 1%. A spin-off of that, as if it wasn't enough to consider and celebrate million-dollar listings, is a show called Million Dollar Rooms. And so the show is all about capturing and showing people that there are rooms out there in the world, not just homes, but single rooms of homes that are worth at least a million dollars. So these are some of the things that this show has, has highlighted. One home, it has this, it calls it a terrace, which is really just to say it's like the pool area. And this terrace has three separate outdoor kitchens. And the entire pool is imported pure marble with two hot tubs, because, you know, one's not enough, and it just balances it architecturally to have two, one on each end. That's one of the rooms. There's another room that's actually an indoor kitchen, and this kitchen is just extravagant. It's these, these handmade cabinets and this huge vaulted bamboo ceiling. And they said the countertops in this room, the countertops are $150,000. There's a fish tank that's $300,000. Another one has a game room that's got these arcade games, and it's got this, this whole setup of pool tables and, and air hockey and foosball. And another section, that there's multiple TV screens set up so that 
People can come together and, and game and play their Xboxes and their PS3s, and they can play on a network but actually be next to each other. And then they realized they didn't have enough room, and so they had the four screens, and they converted the dining room into more screens. So it's a game room worth more than a million dollars. One garage had exotic cars and its own car wash inside the garage, and next to the car wash was a shooting range. You get the sense. It's over the top. It's extravagant. Million dollar rooms and multi-million dollar homes. But what millions of people watch and find entertaining, James would find sick. In today's text, James returns to one of those central themes of the letter. And if it seems like he's kind of circled back on this a couple times, it's because it's important. And it's because he's circling back on one of those topics, wealth and poverty, that Jesus spent a ton of time teaching about. So that's what he has in the crosshairs, is the nature of wealth, and specifically the nature of rotten riches. Bad wealth. People consumed by it. Listen now to the text. Hear what James says. Hear the holy and authoritative word of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered. Murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of the Lord. And he write its truth upon our hearts. You hear that again. We've talked several times about how James echoes Jesus. On well, Luke 6:24, Jesus puts it this way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Those are a couple sobering texts, right? James has, has said some hard stuff in this letter. I mean, he's been intentional to come with the scalpel of the Word of God and to cut and do surgery on our hearts in multiple places. But he's never been this blunt. He's never spoken this sharply. There's an unmistakable edge to the warning this morning. And it raises a question. When you read that, you should be thinking, who's he talking to? Is he talking to believers right now? Are, are these rich Christians he's chastising? Or are these wealthy unbelievers? People who ignore God? Well, I think there's several indications that point to the fact that James is actually referring to unbelievers at this part of the letter. Part of it is you see immediately after this passage, in verse 7, he kind of turns his attention to those who seem to be oppressed by the people in this passage. And then he calls them Brothers. It seems to imply that the people in this text aren't believers. Although he hasn't pulled any punches up to this point, I mean, he's warned believers, right, about being double-minded or double-souled, about having hypocrisy. 
He's warned about having trees in his heart. He's warned about the sins of the tongue and the sins of pride. Well, this morning it's a little bit different. He calls people on the carpet. But do you hear the expectation of judgment in his words? It's a different flavor than the rest of the letter has had. Up to this point, James has sounded like a, a writer of Proverbs. He's echoed Jesus. And he's referenced Leviticus. Well, I think in chapter 5, James takes a moment, puts on his sackcloth, starts snacking on locusts. He's going to be an Old Testament prophet this morning. He's going to echo the warnings of men like Jeremiah and Isaiah. That background is key to understanding what's happening in this passage. I think what James is doing, and commentators agree on this, that he's using a literary device called apostrophe. Now, he's not talking about the little thing that you put as a grammatical point to show possession or contraction. What he's talking about and what he's doing is when someone uses an apostrophe, they're using a device where they're, they're speaking to an audience, and in the midst of speaking to that audience, they pause and address a group of people who aren't there. Which kind of sounds strange, but it's more common than you think. Like if you go read the Old Testament, the, the authors of those prophetic books do it all the time. A prophet is speaking to the people of Israel, and then all of a sudden he'll stop, and he'll start speaking judgment against Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, right? It's not like he stops mid-speech, mid, mid mid-sermon, and jumps in a camel and rides over to Egypt, and then continues, and then jumps on the camel and rides back. He's speaking that in front of the audience to people who aren't there. We, we even see it in contemporary situations. Think of like a political leader at a political rally, right? He's rallying the troops and he's calling things out and then maybe at one point he pauses and he looks at the camera and he starts to call his political opponents on the carpet. Those political opponents aren't in the crowd, but he's doing it for effect. And that's what James is doing here this morning. He's doing this to shine indictment upon the people he addresses, those people that aren't there in the audience. But he's also doing it for the benefit and the warning of the people who are there. So, that's what James is doing. He's speaking like Jeremiah or Amos or Ezekiel. And he wants us to listen. He's doing this as a rebuke. He's doing it as a prediction of the impending judgment that's coming against the unrighteous rich. But you shouldn't hear that and think that leaves us off the hook this morning. He wants us to benefit. He wants us to be convicted as well. And here's, I think, a basic way it benefits us. It underscores, as he addresses people who aren't in the audience, as he addresses the unbelieving rich, the unrighteous rich, it also underscores how God's people are supposed to live and live differently. By condemning the actions of men consumed by money, James is commending Christians, both rich and poor, about how we should regard our earthly possessions. Don't be addicted to what you possess. And don't be consumed by what you don't possess. This isn't an indictment on wealth. It's not a promotion of people going homeless after the service. God's Word is filled with stories of people who He blesses with wealth, right? and stories of the poor who suffer. For the rich, the rich believers, the challenge is to love Christ 
more than your possessions. For the poor, the challenge is to trust God's provision. That His eternal reward will outweigh everything you've lacked here in this world. So, what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit different. I'm going to preach this like James wrote it. This is going to be a sermon that reflects an apostrophe. I'm going to preach to people who may not actually be in the audience. But it wouldn't be good for your heart to sit there and nod along and cast bombs of condemnation out the door of providence. You should sit and listen and be warned and be cautioned and be stirred up to holiness. So I'm going to preach it as a judgment looming in the background. As a series of prophetic woes to the wicked wealthy. And I'm doing that because the way you preach a sermon should reflect the tone of the text, right? You don't come to a text like this in a jovial way. This is one of those grave moments in God's Word. And it's all inspired. It's all inerrant. It's all breathed out by the Spirit to be profitable for us, for you. So with that, the first woe. James gives a woe to the hoarder. James 5.1 Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. I'm going to continue that theme of illustrations from television. Hoarding is a popular topic today. It's become popular in the last couple of years. We're sort of fascinated by it. It's, it's even become sort of a, its own psychological condition. You, know, like you, have to, you have to give counseling and special care. Maybe, maybe it's even in that diagnostic book of psychological conditions. The Hoarder. Well, there's even a show called Extreme Hoarding on A&E. And it, and it highlights people who are obsessive hoarders. And, and most of the time, they just live in filth, right? they got like, these houses that are just like piled up with junk that they're you know, consumed with it. They think it's just a treasure. And, and it's piles of just what we look at as garbage. In fact, one of the episodes, as I was looking into this, was about a person who hoarded rats, if you can imagine. So there's a person, there are people out there who hoard rats. And evidently, this lady loved rats as pets. And so had had like cages where you would have hamsters and gerbils and she had rats. And she was so uncontrolled in her hoarding that the rats got out of their containers and had infested her house. And she was incapable of exterminating them. Because even though she was overrun with literally hundreds of rats in her home, they were her pets. These were her, her precious little Templetons. That's what's going on in her head. Now, you hear that, and you think, that is ludicrous. I mean, that is, that's revolting. You're, you're living with rats. You feel sorry for those people. We're puzzled by them. Even disgusted by the conditions they live in. But if James were the executive producer of Extreme Hoarders, it would hit much closer to home. The hoarder James finds revolting is the man whose hunger for wealth is insatiable. It's the person Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. 
the thirst for possessions and wealth is insatiable because it is a counterfeit God. It is a false God. And false gods are impotent and powerless to placate your desires. They will not satisfy your affections. More stuff, James says, is just going to lead to you longing for more stuff. If that's the source of your joy. And we can be culturally blind to this. There's a reason why these shows are on television. We like watching them. James wouldn't show the rat hoarder. He'd show the real guy on another show with the boathouse filled with 30 multi-million dollar antique boats. He'd show the celebrity entertainer, who if I said his name, you'd all know him, who has so many Porsches he could drive a different one every day of the month and never repeat it. He'd do an expose on bank accounts and 401ks bursting at the seams while people suffer in poverty in the same city. He'd tell the parable of Jesus in Luke 12 with a modern twist. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The business of a rich man had immense profits. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my assets and all my possessions. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my house and build a larger house with more bedrooms than I have kids, more garage stalls than I have cars. I will build a second home with a second pool and I will open new accounts where I can invest all of my surplus funds. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Materialistic accumulation of wealth, of stuff, is death to the soul. If that's what you live for. And because this world is awaiting destruction, Jesus and James say, it's senseless. It's not a place to put your hope. The hoarder buys more clothes than he can wear only to see moths eating the cloth as it sits in his closets. He stores away more money than he can spend only to see gold and silver rust. Now, there's an irony to that, right? Because gold and silver actually don't rust. They're precious metals that don't corrode. And James is saying something there. He's like, that's how worthless your gold and silver is. You think it doesn't rust, but really it does. In the scheme of eternity, it's as valuable as corrugated steel. Judgment looms. And the hoarder is oblivious. In fact, James warns, Woe to you, hoarder of unused wealth and possessions. For on the day of judgment, your never-touched stuff, everything you've accumulated and hidden away, will testify against you. For the way 
you abused your wealth. They will serve as fuel in the fire of your own eternal judgment. You entrusted yourself, you entrusted your welfare to money and not to God. You pined over remote potential of economic collapse or calamities and the inevitability of standing before your Creator as an idolater loomed before you the whole time. The giver of the gifts will hold you accountable to your stewardship. But you actually stockpiled personal treasures in the face of a God who balances all accounts. You should have heeded the words of Jesus and been rich towards God, investing the Master's resources in the work of His kingdom. You should have cared for your neighbor, worked to glorify the bridegroom. But woe to you for hoarding today and not investing eternally. Fool, tonight your soul may be required of you. And then James says, Woe to the oppressor. Woe to the one who defrauds. In James 5.1, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I had a job in college, working just sort of a manual summer labor job, where I experienced an employer like this. First, he promised us a wage that he never paid us. And he also gathered together a group of like 35 guys who were staying in the Twin Cities for the summer to work for them, promised them a job, and three weeks later, only employed 10 of us. He defrauded us. We were, we were ticked. I was thankful I had a job, but I was also upset that he was paying me like $10 less an hour than he promised. But while we were left underpaid, none of us went hungry. The situation James describes is a lot worse. Remember, remember who his audience is? It's these displaced believers, these, these people who were part of his congregation in Jerusalem and now with the increase in persecution have been scattered across Galilee and Palestine. And so in a way, not in a way, I mean they are now migrant people. And they've become evidently migrant farmhands. They're working at the mercy of these wealthy landowners. And in this day and age, in that time, contextually, these lands were dominated by, by, wealthy, by wealthy families who controlled all the property. And so for the average person to live and survive and feed their family, you had to go work for these people. And you were utterly at their mercy with whether they were just or unjust. Well, James implies these migrant Christian farmhands haven't been paid enough. They're not given a fair day's wage to feed and clothe their families or possibly haven't been paid at all. The rich have defrauded them and taken advantage of their legal and social vulnerability as sojourners in a foreign land. James looks at that and says, Woe to the defrauder. Your dishonest prophets harm. Verse 6, he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, I think he's being figurative. But I think he's saying, The way that you have oppressed people, the way you've defrauded people of what was owed them, 
it can leave them starving. Maybe we convince ourselves that our frauds are of a more victimless sort. You underreport your income at tax time. You pad the billable hours to your clients just a little bit. They'll never notice. You knowingly purchase products that are produced through slavery and sweatshops. Because it's a few bucks cheaper. That's not really my problem. You profit by operating in the gray areas of ethics. But convince yourself, no one's really hurt. And more importantly, no one will ever know. But God knows. And God sees. God weighs the scales and balances the accounts. He hates dishonest scales. He hates unjust businesses. He despises ill-gotten gain. He hates the profiteer who ignores injustice in the name of the bottom line. When you persecute your employees and defraud the weak and underpay to line your own pockets, James says, the cries of the people you oppress call out against you. The cries of the poor reach the ears of the Lord. And it's not just they reach the ears of the Lord. How does James put it? They reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The Lord whose armies are limitless. There's this sense of those cries reaching the ears of God and all His armies. And His armies stand ready. His chariots are manned. His stallions are stomping and pawing at the ground. The battalions and the legions are gripping their swords and notching arrows in their bows. They are anxious, the hosts of the Lord, to mete out judgment in the last days. So woe to you when you quietly defraud and secretly oppress and ignore or profit in dealings with those who do. Finally, woe to the self-indulgent. James 5.1 Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 5 You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, luxury is sort of a sexy word in our culture. It's appealing. When things get described as luxury cars and luxury homes and designer shoes and five-star resorts, we think, ooh, desirable, right? The world whispers in our ears every day, luxury is good. Luxury is better. Luxury will make you happy. Now, the word luxury actually isn't inherently evil. I had a period in college where, you know, all like stirred up with self-righteousness, I was convinced anybody who drives a BMW or a Lexus is a sinner. You just kind of look out in the parking lot and if you saw one of those cars, you just, oh, casting judgment bombs at them. I kind of want to just stay here and watch who gets in that car so I can see and know. Sinner! That's not what James is saying. The word luxury is actually used in other parts of Scripture to describe the way God provides possessions for His people. In the new heaven and new earth, it's going to be luxury. 
It's going to be luxurious. So what's the problem? The problem is that this seduction becomes deadly when luxury is combined with the second description of verse 5. With self-indulgence. People who are self-indulgent live for the pleasures of today. Alexis isn't evil if your heart can handle it. But for the self-indulgent person, it is poison that goes down as sweet as honey. Scripture doesn't denounce wealth in general. That's not James's point in this text. You shouldn't be looking around this room, mentally tallying up where people's bank accounts sit, and then categorizing them as less holy or more holy. That's not what James is doing. Many of the heroes of the faith, when you look back and read Scriptures, are wealthy individuals. Abraham, Job, David, the list goes on and on. And you know why they're wealthy? Because God's blessed them with that wealth. So to be wealthy isn't to be evil. The issue lies with the heart of the wealthy person. Listen to Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 6.9. But those who desire to be rich, who lust to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many useless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's the desire. It's the craving that leads to judgment. One, one pastor theologian put it once, that in America, our malls are our cathedrals. Our malls are our cathedrals. We imagine the shopping mall as this utopian edifice of capitalism and consumption. We go there to worship and to buy and to find identity. And guys, before you start elbowing your wives, ah, see, see, we've got our own versions. We call them Bass Pro Shop and Cabela's, right? You go there and kind of stare longingly at the, at the boat or the ATV. You know, I live in the middle of the suburbs, but I could really use an ATV. I'm sure my neighbors would love it if I rode up and down their lawn on the ATV. You do that. Like, I was there a few weeks ago, and I specifically beeline for the ATVs just to, to look at them. And then the guy walks up, can I help you? And it's sort of the embarrassing, like, uh, actually, no, not really. I, I have no use for this thing. I'm just kind of pawning after it. Those things are innocent. There, there's nothing wrong with them all. Don't go pick at them all after this sermon. Don't go protest Bass Pro Shop. But when we make those things our houses of worship, when they become the place where plastic cards purchase the meaning and the life we desire, James says it leads to destruction. I actually had a great illustration of this a few years ago. We were at a house of a family, and they're a family of decent means, you know, fairly well off in the grand scheme of things. And Case is there, he's a little guy at this point, and he's just all, oh, I mean, they had beautiful living room, new furniture, and he's just all over the furniture. And he, he's, you know, we, we lived in this little apartment with these crummy couches, and so we're like, jump away, buddy! You know, so he's been trained. It's like the couch is just for, like, 
total belly flops and just doing crazy, insane stuff. And I would throw them on the couches. And so here we go. We walk into this other family's house. And I know these are like brand new couches. And he is just going crazy on them. And I'm, like, I'm so sorry. And it was so helpful. The guy turned to me and says, no worries. It's all going to burn anyway. And it helped me in that moment. Because I know I had walked into his house. And there had been a craving. There had been a coveting. I'd be so much happier if my couches were new like his couches. And I think he was probably helping himself, reminding himself in that moment, it's all going to burn. Don't get your dander up because a little boy is playing on your possessions, finding more joy out of this couch than you have in the two months you've owned them. That's the opposite attitude of the self-indulgent person. That's not what James is castigating here. James is giving a chilling warning to those who burn with longing for comfort. Comfort is their God. Living in excess is what they strive for. It's the goal of their lives. And he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Your profligate lifestyle is all you live for. Extravagance has captured your heart. You're a sucker for any commercial announcing new, improved, or better. There's like a constant theme in our house. If Case or Sadie are watching a show on TV and an iPad comes on, I know I'm going to hear Case, Daddy, I'd like an iPad. Daddy, Someday, can I have an iPad? They've got their hooks in them. And I have to teach him. There's no lasting joy in the iPad. Because the iPad 2 is just around the corner. And it's got a retina display. How many adults are just as oblivious? Just as sucked in? James shows us that this insatiable lust of the heart for more and for comfort, he likens it to a calf that's eating and devouring, it's filling its stomach for the day of its own destruction. Think about that. The calf eats and consumes and drinks and rests. Oh, this is pleasurable. More grass. Chew it. Swallow it. Spit it back up and chew it again. (laughs) And it never realizes you're eating in preparation for your own destruction. That's what James says happens to the self-indulgent. You're like a fattened cow being led to the slaughter. As long as the fruit as long as the stuff, as long as that iPad is in front of your nose, I'll just ignore the scent of my own blood. Woe to the self-indulgent. Judgment approaches. In your lust for luxury, you've forgotten the giver and worshipped the gift. This happened this morning in our house. 
a cute little funny example that testifies to the. We're sitting there, and, and Hannah sitting there with Lincoln, and just finished getting him ready a little bit, and she had picked up her phone, and all of a sudden Sadie walks in, a little two-year-old, about to be three, and says, Mommy, can I play with your phone? And Hannah just kind of chuckles and says, Sadie, do you love me, or do you love the phone more? And Sadie, I mean, not lying, is what she did. She took it in her hands, and it's just like her eyes are all glittery as she looks at the phone. She says, I love you so much, Mommy. And she's staring at the phone. That literally happened as I was getting ready. I'm like, wow, Lord, thanks for that illustration. <laughs> oh, I love you, God. I love you because you have leather upholstery and, and a Bose surround system and oh, all-wheel drive. And you're I love you, God. I love the gift more than the giver. Because of this, God raises His mighty right arm. This is the imagery James is giving us. Like the butcher, the cleaver. Prepared to deliver the wicked wealthy. The hoarder. The defrauder. The God-ignoring self-indulger to the only future they are suitable for. That's really sobering. There's no other way to preach a text like that. We should sit and think and examine and tremble. And we should also hope. Remember how Jesus responds to the rich young ruler? This guy comes and you kind of, he must be like a 20 year old sophomore in college, right? With the way he's describing the story. He comes up and, Teacher, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you gotta keep the law, right? I've done that perfectly my entire life. I mean, that has to be a self righteous sophomore in college, right? It's me sitting there like, oh, who's got the Lexus? So Jesus responds, you've done well. You've done well. Go now and sell everything you have, all your possessions. Give it to the poor, and you'll have eternal life. Come follow me after you do it. And it just cuts him to the core. It says he bows his head, and his shoulders slump, and he leaves downtrodden and sad, defeated. He wanted eternal life. But he wanted earthly treasures more. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, but who can be saved? And you read that, and you can think, man. But it's actually a passage steeped in hope. Jesus answers despairing crowds that what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's difficult 
for the wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is not impossible. It can happen through the power of grace, through the power of God, to open blind eyes to the superior treasure and pleasure found in His Son. It's difficult but not impossible for the hoarder, for the oppressor, for the self-indulgent to be saved. And so just as James reiterates the warnings about the day of judgment, we should also restate the hope of those prophets. I love the way Joel puts it. And Joel says some hard stuff. Joel 2.11 Yahweh the Lord utters His voice before His army. I think in that moment, what you should picture for a contemporary example is this is, this is Yahweh before the army, sort of like William Wallace in Braveheart motivating the troops, right? And there's, you watch that movie, and there's like, yeah, I am ready to fight. Like that, that's, what, that's what's happening. That's what Joel is describing. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great. And very awesome. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord, is used to talk about the day of judgment. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? What rich person can enter the kingdom? Yet even now, declares the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Verse 31, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As Yahweh the Lord has said, and among the survivors be those whom Yahweh the Lord calls. It's a call to repent. You know your heart. Your friends can help you if you're blind to it. You know if you live for earthly treasures that rust and rot. James says these stark things so that you would turn. You would leave behind worthless things and you would embrace Jesus. James is echoing Jesus' words to underscore the fact that there is only one treasure in all the universe that will satisfy the deep desires and longings of your heart. You won't have to weep and wail when Christ returns like He's pictured in Revelation with the sword of judgment coming out of His mouth. You won't have to weep and mourn in those days if you mourn over your sin now. Even if you've never prayed a single prayer in your entire life, if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling conviction and you're feeling the recognition, I have never worshipped the giver. I've just loved and longed for and worshipped the gifts. 
if that's you, if you are the most corrupt businessman in Johnson County, even if you're not rich and you've just hated God and burned with jealousy because other people have and you don't, God is calling you this morning. He's calling with the voice of Jesus to the rich young ruler. Come. Follow me. Believe. Repent. My Father will forgive. God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents and withdraws His judgment but only for those who find faith in Christ. James reminds us in a world that wants to put a mute on this reminder that judgment is coming. And it's not a zombie apocalypse. It's the judgment of Almighty God. And your only hope is to be shielded by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Go to Christ in refuge. Cast off your rotten riches and hope in the riches of Christ. Jesus is better. I promise you. And to those who are already saved, those who already rest assured under the wings of Christ, protected from the wrath to come. James wants you to remember with gratitude that you deserve destruction, but Jesus has already absorbed it. He's already delivered you. He wants to encourage you in the midst of a world where wickedness prospers. Right? There's all sorts of stuff out in the world today where people doing the wrong things, living for rotten riches, are getting ahead by what they do. And it's tempting, it's hard. Dave, in counseling some of these, these Chinese students in the international, they talk about just, how do we go back to a country, where, to a place where there's, there's corruption and there, there's bribery? How, how do we live for Christ in that context? He wants you to know the wicked will not always prosper. And He wants you to remember you're not made for this world. You're not living for this kingdom. Yours is a heavenly kingdom. An eternal city. And it can't be shaken. 2 Corinthians 8-9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. So remember and be grateful and guard your hearts against earthly treasures. Defensively guard your hearts by assessing, am I being lured? Do I feel tempted? And offensively guard your hearts by assaulting the temptation to hoard and cheat and indulge. Commit yourself to putting on works of righteousness, to stewarding God's gifts. So put on gospel generosity. Give to the poor. Help the oppressed. Sow your resources, not primarily into your 401k, but into the kingdom. And by God's grace, give your first fruits, not your leftovers. You want to guard your heart against being 
rotted by riches? And remember the promise of the gospel. It is too good to be true. And still true. Everything invested in Christ. Everything laid up and stored in eternity. You will return back. Receive back. A hundredfold. And there won't be a single moment of regret. Because Jesus is more. Would you bow your heads?